Before I begin this morning, I need to start with a personal confession. I hope you can hear it well. Uh, this morning I stand before you, I do not have a degree in architecture. I'm sorry. You may think that because I do not have a degree in architecture, I lack the ability to tell you if a building is good or bad. And you would be wrong because, you see, I have seen HGTV. I have watched multiple seasons of This Old House with Bob Vila. And I have read blogs written by people who know things about architecture on the internet. Now those things do not make me an expert, I don't claim to be one, but I have been able through listening to experts pick up some important key features of what would make a house good or bad. And I bring that up because understanding whether or not a building is sound or not is kind of important. If you find yourself in a structure in danger of imminent collapse, that is bad. That's what I learned. But I want to argue this morning that if you find yourself in a church where they've abandoned the gospel or maybe just moved past it a little bit and where division has crept in and where people are no longer focused on Jesus, that is a church in danger of imminent collapse, and that is even worse. You see, the church is a specific kind of place. It's meant to be this place where it's different than what you find on the outside world. A good church accurately displays and reflects the, the love of God, the values of the kingdom of God, far more than it reflects the world outside it. A church is a people it's not a building, but there are definitely good churches and there are bad churches. And many of us, because we lack a degree in ecclesiology or theology or any other ology, we think we're not qualified to tell a good one from a bad one. We lack the language sometimes, maybe when we're visiting out of town, to, to identify what is this intangible thing that I'm perceiving here? It feels off, but I don't know why. And we, we lack, therefore, the ability to address it or maybe to change it. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he is writing to a church that he planted, but their leaders in his absence have started to think that they've outgrown the gospel foundation that Paul laid. He's writing to people who heard the gospel message for the first time from him, but they've become convinced that they found a more spiritual way to live. There, Paul was holding out on us. There's a more practically applicable way to live. And because they were abandoning the gospel foundation that Paul laid, they were abandoning the only thing that can keep a whole bunch of sinners together, and they were losing their unity. In modern terms, we see this happen all the time. Hopefully, praise God, not here, but Churches across this country have situations arise where members start listening more to CNN or to Fox News or to what they find on Instagram than they do the Bible. And they start to look just like the outside world and they stop looking like what the church should be. The church at Corinth was beginning to look like the outside world far more than it should have been the church. And if the inside of the church looks and thinks and acts like the world outside, the church is going to develop the same soul-crushing problems that the outside world has. You see, when the church stops being the church, it becomes irrelevant. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not a church person, if this is a foreign environment to you, 
Welcome. We are really glad you're here. Um, praise God that you're here. I, I want to argue something to you this morning. I want you to come away from this text understanding and believing that what you expect here should be different than what you expect in the outside world. Will we always succeed in being the church Christ wants us to be? Well, all God's people said, no. Um, but you should expect the church to be different than the world outside because, as we will see from our text, God dwells here. That doesn't mean the people in this church or any church will be perfect. We must be patient with others as we're going through the Christian life because this place is a hospital for the sick, not a stage for perfect Christian performance. Now, if you call this church your home, if you bear the name of Christian, I want to encourage you to see through what Paul says in this chapter what a good church should look like. And I want to encourage you to strive alongside your brothers and sisters to help make this place and the people around you in this building look much more like Jesus than we do the city of Chicago. So how does one build a church? Well, the church is built around the unifying truth of the gospel that all people are sinners and rebels estranged from God and unable to find the peace, purpose, and joy that come only through walking with our Creator as we were designed to do. The church is built on the confession that because of God's great love for us, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came to live the life we couldn't live, die the death that our sins deserve, was raised on the third day as the Son of God in power, and even now is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling everything. The church is built around a community of people who realize the only reason that they are saved is because God wanted to. And there's nothing we can do to merit that or to deserve it. In church language, we say we are saved by God's grace alone. That is how you build a church. Let's open up our Bibles and see what the Holy Spirit has to teach us today about what makes a good church. If you're not used to navigating through the Bible, our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, is located toward the very back. If you're using a seatback Bible in front of you, it is on page 953, and the rest of you know how to use your Bible apps on your phones. This is the word of the Lord. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Before we continue, let's pray right now for the Holy Spirit to, to guide us. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for the great gift of your word. We thank you that because you loved us, you have condescended, condescended to human flesh to live as one of us, and you know our frailty, you know our weakness, you know our need. Father, now as we seek to open your word, help us in our weakness and need. Send the Holy Spirit mightily, speak through me, let these words be your words for your people, and send the Spirit among your people that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts soften that we would receive the word given. Protect us from distractions, silence cell phones and watches, and just help us to focus on you and nothing else. And this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, so obviously there's a lot to unpack there, um, but three critically important elements of a church that we can learn from these verses. One, personal maturity. Two, that we are united by humility. Three, we have a corporate mission to be the temple. Fun fact, you can't have a church without those things, and you can't have those things without a church. God designed his church to be one of the primary means that will grow us, right? And we are also going to examine how we can miss these three things by being unwilling to lay down our worldly ideas and deny ourselves the peace, purpose, and joy that comes with embracing the gospel. So very briefly, a note of context if you're new to the Bible. The city of Corinth was a great city of the ancient world. Um, in many respects, actually, it's a city a lot like Chicago. It was a city of great wealth and great poverty. It was divided along socioeconomic and racial and ethnic lines, vocational lines. Corinthian society, not unlike ours, was marked by a certain amount of political tribalism and socioeconomic stratification. And as I noted a moment ago, those worldly divisions found their way into the church, into the family of God's chosen people. People who should have seen differences in socioeconomic status and background and language and ethnicity as beautiful diversity within their own family began to see those things as a means to be jealous of one another, to look down on one another, to disassociate with those who didn't fit their exact whatever they had. And as we said, the problem with the church in Corinth is that they've brought too much Corinth into the church instead of leaving it at the door. So what does Paul say to them to fix this? Well, first he says, personal maturity. You are lacking personal maturity. Going back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Okay, so the opening question I have, right, when you read, you should be asking questions of the text, and if, if this passage is about division, why babies, Paul? Why babies? right? Babies are not divisive. 
right? They, they go where you take them. They don't snub other babies. Your friends are their friends, okay? No, Paul is not saying babies division. He's saying babies immaturity. You see, your immaturity is preventing you from accepting finer things, from, from getting to receive adult things. Look at Paul's words again. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now note too, in these verses, Paul is not addressing division by giving them a parental scolding. Like, hey, you two, get along. No, no, don't make me come down there. It's, I said so. That's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, your limitations, your immaturity are preventing you from enjoying the good stuff. You are choosing to actively stunt your growth and therefore can't handle the meat being offered to you. It's a simple enough image, right? So like if somebody says to you, all right, I've got, I got a 10 ounce filet mignon, beautiful sear on the outside, juicy red on the inside, perfect seasoning on top, and a glass of milk. What do you choose? And if you say, I'm going to take the milk, that's fine, we still love you, but you're deeply immature and made a poor food choice, okay? Don't get mad at me, right? It's the Apostle Paul speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You're still loved and there's room to grow. Paul's words here in this analogy are consistent with the ethical commands of Scripture. Right? Far too often people think of Christianity as the system of rules, and they say, nah, like the Christian sexual ethic is there to keep me from having a good time or realizing who I truly am. But that ain't it. Living like Jesus calls us to live is not about reducing fun, okay? Living like Jesus calls us to live is about experiencing life to the fullest and not settling for shallow and transitory pleasures at the expense of something real, something meaningful. When you have people in a church that aren't speaking to one another, that are judging one another, that are talking trash about one another behind their backs, you have a church that is deeply immature and therefore cannot handle the blessings that God is offering. Milk is for babies. Filet mignon is for adults, okay? There's no area of life where immaturity is better than maturity, but how should we think about maturity? That word could mean a bunch of different things. How is Paul using the term? Okay, well, this morning I want to argue um, that Paul is using maturity as a synonym for the word capacity, okay? Maturity equals capacity here. Uh, I will give you an example from baseball. Now, normally, I am not the person you go to for baseball stats, um, but I ran all of these numbers by Les Carter so you know they're legit. All right, baseball. The average 10-year-old Little League pitcher throws a 40 to 50 mile per hour fastball. The average speed for a pro in Major League Baseball is roughly 95 miles per hour. Now, it is not a lack of effort on the 10-year-old's part that keeps them slow. If a 10-year-old were to all of a sudden throw a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, they would instantly tear their rotator cuff clean off the bone, okay? The major league pitcher has trained for years to have the muscle maturity necessary to handle that speed, right? It's just an it's a simple equation. It's, it's work times time equals maturity. I'll give you another example. Kindergartners are not known for being great fans of the collected works of William Shakespeare, right? You don't have a kindergartner at home reading Shakespeare, and if you tell me you do, you are lying, all right? 
If you want to read great literature, you have to put the time and work in to become a great reader. You can't handle Shakespeare until you've put that effort in. On that note, if you are today engaged in your first ever read through the Bible, if this you said, hey, and I've talked to a bunch of you, that's why I'm bringing this up. If you said, this is the year, I'm gonna get serious about my Bible reading, I'm gonna do it, man, I am so excited for you. You wanna talk about the journey of a lifetime, that is how you begin the journey of a lifetime, you get into God's word. But I do wanna tell you right now that if this is your first read through the Bible, um, you're not gonna enjoy it nearly like what you will when you're on reading number 30. Okay? When you're on reading number one, sometimes Genesis can be a little difficult. When you're on reading number 30, you're freaking out and calling your friends about this thing you just found in Ezekiel or Leviticus. You're like, holy cow, this is amazing, right? Be encouraged. Keep going. Let the Holy Spirit work through this process over time. Be patient. John Piper says uh, this about scripture reading. He says, if, if we rake, we get leaves. If you dig deep enough, you get diamonds, okay? Um, digging deep into spiritual matters is like learning to pitch at the major league level. It's a function of the Holy Spirit working in and through you over time. See, the Corinthians had clearly abandoned the digging work in favor of seemingly shinier rewards sitting on the surface, but there are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. And that's why Paul tells them they can't handle the meat. All right, now, there's a darker side to this, though. Maturity as capacity is not just about the good stuff. Maturity as capacity is not just about the finer things. It's also about your ability to tolerate frustration, pain, and suffering. Maturity means that you can be slandered or insulted and brush it off because you know far more valuable than what that person said is what Jesus thinks of you. Maturity knows that this tough season that you are in will pass because you have seen more than a few tough seasons, and you've seen God's faithfulness in those seasons, and you know he ain't about to stop now. Maturity means having values that align with eternity and not being sidetracked by silly distractions that won't last. But when we are content with the most basic or immature ideas about what Christianity offers, if it's, look, man, I'm out of hell into heaven, I'm good, I don't need any more, okay? If we're not yet ready to go all in with Jesus, we are turning our backs on all of this amazing stuff that Christ is freely offering us. We just don't have the maturity to handle it or the eyes to see it. It's like, okay, it's like this. If you bought somehow this ginormous 80,000 square foot mansion, okay? You've done well for yourself this year. You bought an 80,000 square foot mansion. It's got 26 bedrooms. It's got 39 bathrooms. It's got two pools out back, bowling alley, and movie theater in the basement. And you won't go in past the lobby, okay? You got the mansion. You won't go in past the lobby, right? If you're just hanging out on the outside edges of Christianity, you're trying to get a little Jesus in your life, but not too much, don't want to be a weirdo at work, I want to encourage you, would you move in past the lobby? Would you check out this house? It's there, it's yours. Go check it out. The real blessings come when you go into the house. The lobby's nice, but it's got nothing on the bowling alley. Pursue maturity in Christ. Get in the house. Let's go back to verse three. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, 
are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Are you not being merely human? Meaning, you should be more than that. You should be better than that. If you have been born again and made Jesus Lord of your life, Ephesians 2.6 says that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You are united to the Lord of the universe. And Paul's saying, you Corinthians are demonstrating some very petty, very small human limitations. Your personal maturity is important if you are going to be able to enjoy the gift of the church. But the Christian life is not about you knowing a lot of Bible and living cut off from the body of Christ. Paul has just said, right, that their maturity isn't happening because of division among them. So if we are to be the church, we must also have the humility to move from me to we. It's our second outline point, that we are to be united by humility. Let's read in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who, <coughs> excuse me, he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Okay, so here we have a shift. Paul moves into an agrarian metaphor and is changing from maturity to humility. You see, farmers, right, like a Christian, ought to be some of the humblest people in the world. The farmer can do everything right, but if the sun does not shine, if the rain does not come, if there is an untimely freeze, all of his effort will have been for nothing. The farmer is responsible to do the best job that they can, but the ultimate end product is not up to them. It's God who gives the growth. And if it's God who gives the growth, how foolish does a farmer look when he's bragging about the crop that he brought in when his neighbor's crop was decimated by fire or flood or other act of God? They don't look good. Ultimately, a successful farmer owes everything to God, no matter how hard he works or how ethical he lives or how smart he may be. Now, a little context note here about Paul and Apollos. Uh, Paul and Apollos were both big deals to this church. If the name Apollos isn't super familiar to you, in the book of Acts we learn that Apollos is this very gifted, talented preacher who, like Paul, is traveling around the Mediterranean. He's planting and watering churches, encouraging the believers, right? He's got a great talent and a great love for God, and he's a beloved figure. And there's no evidence anywhere that Paul and Apollos were in any sort of disagreement, right? They did not have a squabble. They did not have beef in the language of today. They were both servants of Christ Jesus committed to the same cause. So for Paul to say that he and Apollos are nothing is meant to instill a little bit of humility in his readers, right? Like, I mean, I, would, I thought I was kind of a big deal, but if Paul and Apollos were nothing, um, what, what does that make me? If Paul is comparing the Corinthians to farmers, he would be communicating that 
they should have greater respect for one another, greater unity in a common cause, striving side by side for the gospel, a greater understanding that, man, we're all part of the same team. But that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul is saying that he and Apollos are farmers. He's saying the Corinthians are the dirt. And if the farmer ought to be humble, how humble should the dirt be? Right? That's what he's saying in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Right? Now, this is not an insult to the Corinthians, okay? Just, just so you know. But what he's saying is the crops are equal, as the workers are equal, and all belong to the same Lord. And if we are equal, and one of us decides to think that because of something silly like our income, our education, uh, we're a really snappy dresser, that we're somehow more worthy of love and respect than the person next to us, who may have just less talent or they dress differently, Paul wants to remind us that this lack of humility will cost us dearly. The question before us when we think on these things is that are we bringing so much ego into the church that we can't receive the true joy that comes with laying it down? You see, humility is critical to the unity of the church because without it, we may have a bunch of individuals gathered together, smart, talented, good-looking individuals in proximity to one another, but we will not have a unified whole. We need humility if we're ever going to go from me to we. Now, hear me, we don't stop being individuals when we become part of the church, but we cannot be the church if we are always looking down on others, jealous of others, or failing to recognize that what unites us is infinitely greater than what could ever separate us. There is no room for a big ego here, even in a church with ceilings this high. If the members of the church aren't united in humility, the church will not hold together. Now, Paul is going to shift his metaphor one more time, and he's going to give us our third element of a good church. It's our corporate mission. Our corporate mission is to be the temple. Pick back up in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul gives us a list of six items in verse 12. There's obviously a sober warning running through this. His list of six items, right, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, it's just a list of two things. One category is going to last, the other category will not, right? The metaphor is just saying that you can build a church just like you can build your life with things that will last or things that won't things that are eternal, things that are very, 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 very short-lived. When the storms of life come, when the fire hits what you've built, when disaster strikes, only those things that God supplies will be standing. If we attempt to build the church 
using something other than what God supplies. If we attempt to build the church using slick marketing, worldly philosophy, shying away from the culturally difficult teachings of Scripture in order to not give offense, we will be building a church that is no different than the outside world. And if the church stops being the church, it becomes irrelevant. If you have been saved by placing your trust and allegiance in Jesus Christ and Him alone, there's another warning for you here as well. If you've been saved by your allegiance to King Jesus, but you're leaving that foundation in order to build a life that looks just like the life of your unsaved neighbors, Paul is saying in verse 15 that you will still be saved. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. But you may look back on a life full of misspent opportunity and wasted time. If you have been saved by the grace of God, all of your sins are already forgiven. But that doesn't mean you're ready to enjoy everything that God wants to give to you. You bought the mansion, don't get stuck in the lobby. We're going to conclude with verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Um, quick note about Bible translation. So anyone who has ever really tried to study Hebrew or Greek or uh, heaven forbid Aramaic knows that the people who have dedicated their lives to translating the Bible you hold in your hand are all geniuses and gifts to the church. And oh my goodness, none of us are really qualified to question 99.9% .9 of their decisions. But here's that other 0.01%. So in the ESV, in verses 16 and 17, we read the word you. And, and, okay, there's a problem because we read that as you, the individual, you sitting right there. Unfortunately, we need to be reading that as the word y'all, okay? In 16 and 17, you equals y'all. Yes, y'all, it is the appropriate second person plural of the English language. It is good grammar to use it. If you don't like it, you may say you guys, but please make it plural, okay? Thank you. I got an amen back there. I appreciate that. I feel seen. I feel seen. Okay. So here's the deal. What this text should read is this. Do you, as in all of you church, know that together all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in all y'all as a corporate entity? Okay? If we are to properly build a church, Paul is telling us we must recognize we have a shared mission. All of us together, when we are assembled, are meant to be God's temple. And temple is a word we want to read modern interpretation into, or like it's a house of worship, it's a really nice, you know, cathedral. That is not the ancient understanding of the word temple. Temple is not a place of religious observance. Temple is a place where you have like the physical material world and, and the spiritual supernatural world, and stuff gets real weird and thin, and that's where it is. That is where you go in the ancient world to meet the gods, right? The temple is a place where you encounter the transcendent, the supernatural. And our culture likes to think that the church is little different than a social club, a place for people who don't drink, smoke, or swear to get together in their finery and talk about how good we were this week. What Paul is saying in no uncertain terms is that the gathered church is the place where you should go to meet 
God. What Paul is saying here is don't think too little of this. This is huge. Verse 17 says the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your midst right now. That means you too, Moody Church, right this second. We have a shared mission to be the church, to be the place where God's love is felt more powerfully, where God's truth is proclaimed, where broken people can come and find true rest, where people tossed about by the storms of this world can find peace, purpose, and joy. Brothers and sisters, we must never lose sight of this reality. True unity comes when we seek to grow in maturity in Christ, to see how much we've been forgiven and humble ourselves, submitting to one another in love, joining together on mission to expand the borders of this temple, not just to the ends of Chicago, but to the entire world. If we are holding on to reasons to divide from one another, we don't stand a chance at accomplishing this mission. If the bricks that make up this sanctuary all of a sudden decided, I don't like that brick anymore, I'm out. This building would collapse around our ears and would be good for nothing but building still more condos. What petty offenses have we held on to over the years at the expense of this glorious mission? What childish reasons have we embraced to not be who God has called us to be? Are we the kind of people that James speaks about in James chapter 2, where he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there, you could sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Rich or poor, old or young, regardless of our country of origin or skin color, we as the gathered body of Christ should be something different than the world outside. People who have been forgiven much also ought to forgive much in turn. Now when I say that, I know I'm speaking to people who have hurt. And I don't want to minimize the very real hurt that can happen within the family of God. Bad things can and do happen in church contexts. That's why Paul explicitly addresses that in verse 17, where he says those who destroy the church will in turn be destroyed. People getting hurt in church is not a new phenomenon. And I'm sorry to say that if you hang out in a church long enough, someone who should definitely know better is going to say something mean or thoughtless or cruel, maybe on accident, maybe on purpose. Jesus died for sins like that. The hurt that people have caused by sinning against you is real. And the wisdom of this world would say, scrape them off. The wisdom of this world would say, nuh-uh, that's not gonna happen again. I'm not letting this person in. I'll, I'll be nice. I'm not gonna let anybody get that close. The wisdom of this world says, don't, don't be a brick with these other bricks. Those other bricks don't like you. They don't want you here. It is hard work to forgive those people and do what Jesus did, dying to self, dying to pride, 
dying to our dignity sometimes and intentionally loving other people who by any earthly standard simply do not deserve it. Other people do not deserve your forgiveness. I'll say it again in case you thought I mis misspoke. Other people do not deserve your forgiveness. The people who crucified Jesus Christ, our Lord, and I am one, don't deserve forgiveness. And those are the people Jesus came to reconcile to God. Jesus calls us, as his followers, to lay down our rights and forgive them anyway. If we are to be on mission as the church, we must first be reconciled to one another. A temple cannot be a temple if the bricks will not hold together. And if the structure won't hang together, it can't be the church. And if the church stops being the church, it becomes irrelevant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that no matter what has happened in our lives, no matter what wrong has been done to us, no matter what reason we have, for wanting to keep people at a distance, for not getting involved, for not getting close to someone. Father, we, we know that you've been more wronged. We know that you've suffered greater. We know that you have endured far worse. And we know that you see our need. You feel our hearts. You sympathize with your people. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who in every way has suffered as we have. So Father, we, we pray that you would help us this morning to be the church. If there's someone here who's hurting on the inside and can't seem to lay these things down, Father, won't you convict them of what comes with laying it down? If there are some of us here who have wronged others, won't you help us to lay down our pride and go to those we've wronged? Father, if there's any here who are just trying to figure this Christianity thing out, won't you show them what a beautiful gift your church is and can be? And Father, help us to live on mission as your temple. Let people meet God here. Help us to love others better. Help us now as we go into this week. Let us be the church. These things we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.